Well, again, as I just mentioned, we're in our last Sunday now in Galatians. It's been uh, a, hopefully a fruitful and enjoyable uh, several months working through this little letter that Paul wrote a couple thousand years ago. Today we're, we're reading uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And as you think of the phrase, famous last words, I wonder what comes to mind for you. If you're the same age as me, you might think of a song by a particular emo band, uh, but you might also think of famous speeches that people have made or, uh, you know, in- incredible sort of emotive statements that people have made in their final moments. Uh, Paul here is giving his, his last words to the Galatians, and I don't know how famous they are, but I do know that he wanted to make an impression at the end because he's, he's practicing what often was practiced, which is dictating a letter to a secretary. And as he comes to the end, he says, give me the pen and let me write in my own writing. And it's, it's kind of, it reminds me of um, like when my wife and I are signing a card together and she's, she's much more um, loquacious than I am in signing cards. And so if she goes first, then I know I'm going to have just a little section to write something in. Uh, Paul, maybe, maybe he looked and he still, there was a lot of room left on the paper, which is why he says, look at what large letters I'm using. He's thinking, how can I fit up all the remaining space to make my point? His focus here, our focus this morning, is going to be on three things that he emphasizes toward the end. One, the contrast of Paul's character versus the character of his opponents. Second, the contrast of his message versus theirs. And third, we're going to zoom in on what he says is the only thing that matters, the heart of his message, which is a new creation. Again, Galatians 6, beginning in verse 11, I'll read through the end of the letter. Look at what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard, and mercy even to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, as I mentioned here at the end of his letter, Paul does what he's done at various points throughout Galatians, which is he wants to defend himself against his opponents. Why does he need to do that? Remember the context of Galatians, Paul plants this church. He's a, an apostle. He's on his missionary journey, and he plants this church, and it's, it's going well, and he leaves, and he gets word not too long after that some people have come in. He calls them troublemakers. And they're preaching against his message. They're preaching a different gospel. And not only that, but they're doing a couple things. One, they're, they're, they're distorting his message and, and, and criticizing really a caricature of his message. So they're saying, oh, Paul says you're, saved, you're, you're justified by grace alone through faith alone. If that's true, then what you do doesn't matter. You can live however you want. And Paul responds to that. He says, no, that's not true. I'm not saying good works don't matter. I'm saying good works can't justify you. Well, they're saying, you know, the, the, the people who come in, they're, they're Jewish believers, and they're saying, we have, we have Peter, James, and John 
on our side. They preach a different gospel than Paul. And Paul says, no, look, I, I went to Peter, James, and John. And we agree. And they said, I'm preaching the same gospel that they're preaching. So he defends his message, but he also defends his character. It's probably the case that, that these, uh, the, the Judaizers, the troublemakers in Galatia, are reminding the Galatians about Paul's past. And they're saying, can you really trust this guy? He was just persecuting the church a few years ago. He was, he was ravaging the church, Acts says. Can you really trust his motives? Can you really trust the gospel that he's preaching? And again, he defends himself. He says, you can trust it. You can trust me. And here's why you can trust my character. Because one, my opponents, as we saw last week, boast in the flesh. Their boast, their trust is in what they can accomplish. I boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. But moreover, he says, they're inauthentic in their ministry. He says, they're telling you to obey the law, but they don't even obey the law that they're telling you that you need to obey. He says, I am authentic. How, how do you know? Well, they only boast in the flesh because they're unwilling to suffer. But I, verse 17, he says, bear the marks of Christ on my body. I bear the marks of Christ on my body. What does Paul mean by this? Well, there's, there, there has arisen throughout the centuries a sort of mystical tradition that Paul, because of his, his unique level of intimacy with Christ, actually developed on his body the marks that Christ had on his body from the cross. The nails, uh, the scars of nails in his wrists and the, the, the spear that pierced his side. And some people have even said that, that some saints throughout the century have become so Christ-like that the same thing has happened to them, that they've had the marks of Christ on their body. Uh, I don't think that that's what's going on here. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think much more practically, Paul has his own scars, his own scars that have actually been brought onto his body from the suffering that he has suffered for the sake of Christ. We read in 2 Corinthians that because of his gospel preaching, he was flogged five times, he was beaten three times, he was stoned and left for dead. And so he's saying, look, the, the, the Judaizers want you to bear the works of the flesh on your body. They want you to bear the marks of the flesh on your body through circumcision because they're afraid to suffer. But I bear the marks of Christ on my body. I've suffered for what I'm preaching. And we saw this way back in chapter four, that the nature of true Christian leadership is such that, that false teachers are not willing to suffer for you. But true gospel teachers are, as Paul says, suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Paul says, you can trust me instead of them because I'm willing to suffer for you. Second contrast is the contrast between his message and theirs. Not only is his character different, but his message is different. And the difference can be summed up in one word each. On the one hand, law, and on the other hand, faith. Paul is saying that the message of these troublemakers is that faith is not enough to justify you before God. Faith is not enough to save you. Yes, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to obey the law. In particular, you need to obey these certain markers of the law. And Paul is coming in and he's saying, look, you actually can't obey the law well enough. You can't obey the law well enough to justify yourself. And we saw how this sort of expands out, doesn't it, into all these different facets in life. It's not just the sort of self-conscious attempt to earn your way into God's good standing. It can work itself out in so many different places in life. I was talking to somebody just this week about one of the ways that, that this works itself out in our lives is when we, when we mess up in a certain way. 
when we commit some sin that we've committed so many times before and we think, oh, before I go pray about this, before I talk to anybody else about it, before I read my Bible again, I need to clean myself up for a few days. I need to have a good streak of not messing up before I go back to God in prayer. This is, that's justification by works. It's saying that God is less pleased with me. He's less happy with me. He loves me less when I mess up. And so I have to work my way back into his good standing. I had another conversation this week about the way this works out in our lives. And it's when we beat ourselves up because we're not reaching some standard that either we have set for ourselves or that we think other people have set for us. We haven't reached the standard we think our parents or our bosses or our professors or our peers have set for us. And so we, we beat ourselves up and we think we're not good enough and we feel worse about ourselves. And we don't recognize you know, what, what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, which is that I'm not justified by other people's opinion of me. And I'm also not justified by my own opinion of me. But I'm justified by God's opinion of me. And through him, the verdict is already in. That's Paul's message. That you, first, that you're a lawbreaker, that you can't obey the law well enough to justify yourself. That's the bad news, but the good news is that Jesus came and obeyed the law perfectly in your place and earned the blessing of the law in your place and yet went to the cross and took the curse of the law in your place, took the death and the suffering and the punishment that you deserved. And as a result, when you believe in him, when you have faith in him, you're united with him and his righteousness becomes yours, and you are justified. Now, this contrast between law and faith is really heightened and, and sort of culminated in this debate over circumcision. That may seem weird if you don't have a religious background or if you don't have a, a background in the Bible. Like, how could that possibly be a, a marker of spirituality? Well, God gave in the Old Testament, in his covenant with Abraham, he gave his people this sign and the thing that marked you off as a member of the covenant community was circumcision. And so the Judaizers now are saying you must still get circumcised. Faith alone isn't enough to bring you into the covenant community. You must get circumcised. And Paul, in the first few chapters of Galatians, is just railing against that. And you can imagine, can't you? I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the, of the non-Jewish believers in the Galatian church. And Paul has written this letter to the Galatians. And somebody, his messenger, brings the letter to the church. And the pastors there receive the letter. And it's Sunday morning, and they say, we have a new letter from Paul, and we're going to read it. Now, the second they say that, there's probably some tension in the air, right? Because there's, this, there's a faction over, should we trust Paul or not? And the guy gets up there, the pastor gets up there, and he starts reading the letter from Paul to the Galatians, and he's just railing against these Judaizers. He's saying, you don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to be circumcised, and he's, he, the, the haughty, arrogant members of the congregation, he's putting them in their place. And now the, the Gentile believers, the non-Jewish believers, might be hearing this, and they might be starting, well, some of them might be thinking, I wish I hadn't gone through that operation that I just went through. <laughs> but others of them might be thinking, hey, wait a second, maybe we're the ones who ought to feel good about ourselves. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe those guys, maybe we're better off for not having been circumcised. Maybe, maybe it's actually better to not have that law background and to not have that Jewish background. And maybe, yeah, maybe you guys are the ones who need to be put into your place. You would almost think that that's the direction that Paul's going. But what does he say here at the end of his letter, which he's already said before, verse 15, he says, both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. 
He puts the religious people in their place, and then he turns around and immediately puts the irreligious people in their place. He puts the people who obey the law in their place, and then he puts the people who don't have the law in their place. He's saying neither religion nor irreligion, neither morality nor immorality. In fact, as we saw in chapter 3, neither Gentile nor Jew, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. So race, gender, class, none of those things justify you. None of those things improve your standing before God. In fact, there's nothing about you that you can do to improve God's opinion of you. He says there's only one thing that matters. And what is it? It's what he calls a new creation. Now, before we dig into this, we just need to say at the start, don't we, that, that whatever else a new creation is, only God can do it. <laughs> only God can create. At the beginning, God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. He speaks, and the world comes into existence. And in the same way, the new creation is holy of God and not of us. What does Paul mean by the new creation? I want us to spend the rest of our time thinking about this concept in in three different dimensions. First, the new creation in the individual. Contrary to what you may think, Christianity is not about making people good. It's about making people new. It's not about making people good. It's about making people new. C.S. Lewis said this in, um, it was the title of one of the chapters in Mere Christianity was Nice People or New Men. And he asked the question, basically, shouldn't all Christians be nicer than all non-Christians? If Christianity is true, wouldn't it make sense? And some people think this. This is you know, an argument against Christianity. If, if Christianity were true, then wouldn't all Christians be nicer than all non-Christians? And he says, no, you're comparing apples to oranges. You don't, you don't need to compare you know, Jane with Jack. What you need to do is compare Jane with who she was before she was a Christian, you need to compare her with who she would be if she weren't a Christian. And, and it may be that she still has a dirty mouth and that she still you know, it loses her temper sometimes, but what was she like before she was a Christian? That's the sign of whether this thing is legitimate or not. And by the way, this is why you should never compare yourself to other Christians, uh, among other reasons. You should never... Now, this is another thing you should never do, okay? It, but if you, if you were to put sanctification on like a numerical scale of one to 10, you shouldn't do that. That's a terrible idea. But if you were to do that, and one is like totally sinful, unholy, and 10 is like you're perfectly Christ-like, and you look at your life and you think, okay, maybe, maybe I'm like a five, maybe I'm like a six on good days, right? Like I'm past the halfway point. And you look at another person in, in your church or in your family and you think, oh, they're, they're a three, uh, and you start to feel good about yourself and you start to puff yourself up. What you don't often take into consideration is that people don't start life in the same place. Right? There's a, th- what sometimes passes as sanctification is really just manners or a type of decorum or an ability to conduct yourself in front of other people. It's being a little bit more functional and having your life together a little bit more. And you don't realize that some people in that regard start life at like a four or five, right? You have a pretty functional family. Your parents are together. You're, uh, you're taught good manners. You, you, you have college paid for, so you get a good education. And other people are starting at like a one. And their family is horribly dysfunctional. And they've inherited all these bad habits and, and practices that are not going to be helpful to them. And what you don't realize is by getting to a three, they've actually grown more than you have. 
And their life may be more evidence of the work of the Spirit and the gospel than yours is. You should never compare yourself to other Christians. What matters is not what you look like on the outside, whether you have it all together. What matters, Paul says, is whether you've been remade on the inside. And the Bible calls this rebirth or regeneration. It's to be made totally new, to be born again. And it's something that we cannot accomplish any more than we accomplished our first birth. You and I had nothing to do with being brought into this world, and we don't have anything to do with being reborn. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of of the same God who said, let there be light, who now causes the light of the knowledge of Christ to shine into our dark hearts. Now, the new creation leads to new actions, yes, but even more fundamentally, it leads to new affections. It leads to new desires, to new longings, to a new heart. We see this in the life of Paul himself, as we already mentioned, and it was probably being used against him. In Paul's past, nobody hated the church more than he did. He, he persecuted Christians. He, was, he arrested them for being heretics. He was present at their stonings, may have even overseen them being stoned. And all of a sudden, one day, he's on the road to a place called Damascus to continue persecuting the church, and he's riding on his donkey, and this bright light shines right in his face out of nowhere, and this loud, booming voice comes, and it knocks him off his donkey, and it says, Saul, Saul, which is, Saul is his Jewish name, Paul is his, uh, his Greek name, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment on, Paul's life is different, not just his actions, but his desires. He hated the church, and now he's suffering for the church. He tried to destroy the church, and now he's giving his life to build the church. And that happens to us. Has that happened to you? Are you a new creation? Do you have new desires, new affections? Would you like to be? Do you feel trapped You feel trapped in your desires and your affections. You feel like you can't stop making decisions that bring dysfunction into your life and the lives of those around you. Do you you feel the, the weight of your sin and guilt bearing down on you? Do you feel trapped in shame and anxiety? If so, that can change. That doesn't have to be true of you. You can become a new creation. Listen, I'm not saying... It's going to be easy. Uh, I've been reading, some of you know, I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to Lydia, our daughter, and so I have lots of Narnia um, allusions and illustrations lately, but I was reading just last night in the, in the fourth book, well, depending on how you number them, uh, there's a character. The, the book begins by saying, there was once a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And he's, he's just like his name sounds. He's whiny, and he's a brat. And during the book, he turns into a dragon. And uh, the way that he turns back into a boy is he meets Aslan, who, if you know anything about Narnia, is kind of the Christ character. And Aslan tells him, you have to, you have to take off your clothes, your, your scales, he says, the scales of the dragon. And Eustace does it, and then they keep growing back, and they keep growing back, and they keep growing back. And then finally, Aslan says, I have to do it for you. And as Eustace is describing it, he says, the, the first, he says, his claws went into me, and it hurt unlike anything I've ever felt before, and I thought I was going to die. It was so painful. And he starts ripping these scales off, 
And then I have to, I, he got into this pool and he says, the water stung at first, but then it felt better than anything I've ever felt. That's what it's like to be remade, reborn. You may think, if, I, if I'm born again, if I become a Christian, then everything's going to be better all at once. And that's not the promise. It's a type of death. It might hurt more at first. But, but there is a promise that your life will change, will be made new, your affections will change, your desires will change. All you have to do, you think, well, I thought you said I, I couldn't do anything to, 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 to be born again. No, but if you have the desire to be born again, if you want to be made new, that is evidence that God is calling you. And if you call on him, if you call on Jesus, the Bible promises us that you, you will be saved. You will be made new. So first, the new creation is in the individual. Second, the new creation is also in the church. Paul refers here in verse 16 to the Israel of God. May peace come to all who follow this standard and mercy even to the Israel of God. There's debate, a little bit of debate about what exactly Paul means by this. Is he here throwing a bone at the end to the, the Jewish Christians who are, are really not yet Christians all the way because they're still abiding in the law? Or is he calling the church the Israel of God? The, the new people of God. And I think it's the latter because Paul refers to this concept elsewhere in the Bible. In Colossians 2.11, he alludes to it. He says that the true circumcision is the circumcision of Christ. It's not the circumcision in the flesh, but it's the cutting away of the hard heart that happens when we believe in Christ. In Philippians 3, Paul says, we, the church, are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. So again, he says the true people of God are not those who obey the law, but those who worship by the Spirit. And then in Romans 9, 6, he says it the most explicitly. He says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So he says there's, there's a difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, or the Israel of God. He says the, the, the true Israel of God is something else. W what is the Israel of God? Well, Galatians 3 and 4 gave us a hint, didn't it? Because what does Paul say? He makes this big deal about God made this promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless the whole world through your offspring. And he makes a big deal about offspring being singular instead of plural. And where does he land? He says, he says the true offspring of Abraham, the true Israel, is not a nation. It's Jesus, Jesus is the true Israel, and therefore the, the Israel of God is Christ and whoever has faith in him, whoever is grafted into him by faith. And as a result, the gospel not only forms a new creation in you when you're united to Christ, but it forms a new community or a new society, all those who are grafted into faith, into Christ by faith. I read an article this week um, about network states. Does anybody know what these are, network states? This is a new concept, okay? It's, uh, I'll read the definition. A network state starts with an online community of like-minded people. So it's a group of people who get together online around some shared community. But it moves into the offline world by crowdfunding the purchase of land and inhabiting it intensively enough that at least one pre-existing government is moved to offer diplomatic recognition. So this hasn't actually happened yet. But it, of course, it's, a, it's an online phenomenon that people are talking about. Basically, we can create our own nation by gathering online around this shared interest and then buying a piece of land and moving there and, and wielding enough power and agency that some other nation uh, notes us as, as a nation. Now, what unites them? It's this one, whatever it is, one great shared common interest. 
They come together around one thing that they all are on the same page about. Who's who's driving this utopian dream? Well, it's obviously the techies in Silicon Valley, right? Like who else would would come up with this idea? Uh, But I was reading this week as they're desiring to remake the world. There's a a problem, as one critic brought up. Um, When they, one, who, who can be a part of these network states? Well, it's only the uber rich, right? It's only people who could afford to help buy a piece of land and move there and create this new world. And one critic was talking about this, and he said, here's, here's the problem. When all these rich people move to Montenegro or wherever, and they buy a piece of land, and they build these beautiful high-rise condos and all these other things, who's going to like fix your brakes in your car? And who's going who's gonna to change the sheets in the, in the hotels? And who's going to cook the food at the restaurants? This critic says, it's a great idea, but in practice, I think it would be a dystopian nightmare. Now, why am I talking about this? Because I think that the new creation in the church fulfills the deep longing of the network state idea without the dark underside. Don't get me wrong, the church is not a utopia, Uh, not in this life anyway, But it is a new society that is drawn together by one great common interest. Augustine said in the City of God that a a, a true commonwealth has to have a shared great common love. And if it doesn't, it's not a true commonwealth. And so the church has that. But the difference is our great common love doesn't make us exclude other people. It doesn't make us neglect other people. It doesn't lead us to use other people. It, It leads us to love them and to serve them. And it doesn't just draw together people who can afford it and earn their way into it. It's not just for the beautiful or the intelligent or the the uber rich. It's for, as we sing here sometimes, it's for the poor and the powerless. It's for any, those who are near, those who are far, any who will call on the name of Jesus. The network state is a society of sameness that you buy your way into. And the church is a society of unity and diversity that you're brought into apart from anything that you have to offer on your own, purely by the grace of Jesus. And what do you find when you get there? You find life and love and community and help and people to bear your burdens. You find grace. You find that you can breathe. And we so desperately need this right now. And our neighbors so desperately need this right now. I was reading another article this week. The author, Derek Thompson, wrote an article called Why Americans Suddenly Stopped Hanging Out. Too Much Aloneness is Creating a Crisis of Social Fitness. He says, from 2003 to 2022, American men reduced their average hours of face-to-face socializing by about 30%. For unmarried Americans, the decline was even bigger, about 35%. For teenagers, it was more than 45%. Boys and girls ages 15 to 19 reduced their weekly social hangouts by more than three hours a week. In short, he says, there is no statistical record of any other period in U.S. history when people have spent more time alone. Now, what's the problem? Some of you are introverts and you're saying, that sounds, like, that sounds great. That sounds like my network state. Uh, I'm also an introvert, but we need to be around people. We're suffering from aloneness and from isolation. He, he says that the, the problem is that anxiety and dissatisfaction are rising in lockstep with solitude. Uh, 
the, the hangout depression, as the author calls it, seems to clearly correlate with actual depression. The church is a uniquely beautiful and compelling antidote to this. A, a, a community where you can come and you don't have to earn your way, you don't have to buy your way, you're not accepted on the basis of any accomplishment or accolade of your own, but you're, you come, and as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we receive one another as we receive Christ. I receive you because Christ is standing between us, and you receive me because Christ is standing between us, and I receive you on his merits and not your own, and vice versa. No creativity or ingenuity or wealth can engineer a community like that. Only the cross of Christ can do that. Third, the new creation in the future. Uh, this, this zooms out a little bit of Paul's letter, but it, it fits with the beginning, and I think it's important to meditate on this theme. Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a sermon in the 1700s called Heaven is a World of Love. Heaven is a World of Love. And he bases it on this idea in 1 Corinthians that Paul says God gave us these three great things, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love because everything else will pass away, but love will endure. And so he says after everything else is gone, when we are in heaven, what we find is nothing but love. And this is so compelling because Tim Keller put it this way, what we most long for is not life after death, but love after death. What we most long for is not just life after death, but love after death, because what makes life meaningful? Love does. Think about, what else, what do we think of could make life meaningful? It's not excitement. When my favorite team won the national championship in 2012, I was so excited. I celebrated all night, went out the next morning to this local sporting goods shore, bought the, the, the T-shirt, wore it all week until it got stinky, right? And by the time I had to wash that shirt, nobody else cared. <laughs> it, it, it was over. And by the next year, I didn't even care. I was disappointed at, at how bad we were the next year. The, excitement doesn't make life meaningful. Experiences don't make life meaningful. Like really, your favorite concert ever was great, but does that make your life meaningful? Entertainment, what we spend most of our time doing, doesn't make life meaningful. What makes life meaningful is not excitement or experience or entertainment. It's, it's those things with the people that you love. What mattered more than that championship was me calling my dad afterwards and sharing it with him. Right, what matters more than the, the amazing concert that you went to is who you went to it with. Uh, my favorite movie, speaking of entertainment, is The Shawshank Redemption. And the first time I watched it, I was a senior in high school, and I was headed to the, the state golf tournament, and our team had this team van that had a DVD player in it, and one of our teammates brought it and was like, this is what we're going to watch on the two-and-a-half-hour drive. And he said, nobody, had ever, nobody else had ever seen it, and he said, as soon as it's over, you're going to want to watch it again. As soon as you understand it, and sure enough, it ended almost as we were pulling into Bowling Green, and I was like, turn it back on. I want to watch it again. I remember the first time I saw That's what makes it meaningful, not the movie itself, but the people I watched it with. The Christian hope is that you get that back forever, that in the new creation, in the future, you get not just life, but love. Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of Galatians says that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Implication, he has saved us for a new age. 
And he inaugurated that age. He began that age when he came the first time, and he will bring it to consummation when he comes again. And as a result, love will be all that we know. This is better. The, the secular worldview that this life is all that there is truly offers no hope. There's nothing, nothing is meaningful if you're going to die and nobody's going to remember anything you ever did in 100 years, and eventually it's all going to burn up anyway. And on the other hand, there's some religions religious traditions or worldviews that will tell you that, that after death, you get a sort of impersonal life back, right? That, that your sort of consciousness remains or you become sort of subsumed into the, the all soul of the world or you're reincarnated and live these, these different lives. But, but even that's, that's life without love. And it pales in comparison to the Christian offer in the gospel that you get love after death and that this love will infuse all things and that the ultimate hope is not just in your own renewal, that you will get love after death, but that all things will be renewed and and love will, will be shot through everything. This is Revelation 21. The Apostle John sees this vision of the new creation and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, and it said, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The best part of the new creation is that we get to be with God. And that, that's why heaven is a world of love. <laughs> because God is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And if God is there, then it must be a world of love. This is what Edward says in his sermon. He says, <clears throat> heaven is a world of love because God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. And he says, because God is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. And because God is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is a full, overflowing, and inexhaustible fountain of love. And in that he is an unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. In heaven, this infinite fountain of love, he says, this eternal three-in-one Father, Son, and Spirit is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. Do you see that image? This, this overflowing fountain of love, which in this life there are so many obstacles in front of, is set open with, with no obstacles. We can come and drink freely. And he says there... We shall enjoy and dwell with God the Father whom we have loved with all our hearts on earth and with Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, and with the Holy Spirit, our sanctifier and guide and comforter, and all shall be filled with the fullness of God forever. This is our hope. This is our hope that there is a new creation, that we have experienced it individually, that we're getting to experience it now in the church and that we will experience it in full in the future. And Paul says, may, may peace come to all who, who follow this standard, to all who hold on to this hope of the new creation. May we always cling to that, to the hope of new creation through Christ alone. Father, it's through Christ alone that we come to you and we pray that you would give us a vision <clears throat> of this new creation 
in our lives, that we would not today try to work our way into your good graces, but that we would cling to the fact that we've been made new by your spirit. And that we would not try to manufacture a perfect community in the church, but that we would come to the place where other people have been born again and where your spirit is present and where we are accepted because of what Christ has done and not because of what we can do. And Father, help us to look forward to the hope of resurrection where we will truly be with all those who are in you and all that we have lost will be restored and you will be with us. In Jesus' name.